ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come uh, to your word, I pray that it has its way with us, that is, that it teaches us, that it reproves us, that it corrects us, that it trains us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work or the good to which you call us. And so now I pray uh, that you would, by your Spirit, give to us receptive receiving minds, hearts, that we may believe and live. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Malachi and chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. I want to read verses 10 through 16. Malachi chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in spirits and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, what I want to do today, I won't be able to get through all of this. What I want to do today, if God will help me, is to lay out uh, the big idea, the main theme, if you will, of this passage. And then, um, given what this main theme will stir up in us, I want to lay out a way for us to hear it. And then, if I have time, I want to take up the first point of it. All right? So that's, that's the plan. Now, um, the big idea, the main theme here is marriage. And marriage within the context of our relationship with God. If I were to title this message... I would title it something like Marriage and the Worship of God. Now, uh, in our Bibles, we generally have headings in various uh, passages. Um, In the New American Standard Bible that some of you use, the NAS, 
Uh, there is no heading for this. It was wise on the parts of the translators there to say, let's not try to touch this. Uh, but um, but in, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, which I have been reading from for some years now, um, the, the heading is Judah profaned the covenant. Now, uh, these headings, of course, I said translators, I was incorrect, when uh, these headings are not part of the original text and the translators didn't put them in there, the, the editors of the Bibles that we have put them in there to help our reading. So they're nice and usually very helpful. This one, Judah profaned the covenant. In the NIV, I think it just simply reads, Judah unfaithful. It fits, it comes from verse 10. Uh, have we not all one father has not one God created us, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning uh, the covenant uh, of our fathers? Now, that expression, Judah unfaithful, or Judah or Israel profanes uh, the covenant, uh, could really be used of most of the Old Testament uh, prophetic writings. It, it could be used of, of much of what we've already uh, looked at here. Uh, in, in, in chapter 1, we realize they profaned or desecrated or or maligned the covenant uh, of God, the, God's uh, relationship with them as he defined it uh, by offering uh, lame, literally, and unfit sacrifices. And then in chapter 2, we read last Sunday about the priests and how they maligned, desecrated, really, this covenant, this way of God relating to his people as he defined it um, uh, by way of of, of their practices and their lives and, and not having within their own hearts the glory of God uh, and uh, accepting unfit offerings and offering unfit offerings and teaching that which was not true about God, all of that. So, so, so we, could, we could say, yes, in all of these cases, Israel profanes uh, God's, God's covenant. But as we look through here, I get the idea of, of worship and marriage, marriage in the context of, of worship from this expression that they profane the covenant of our fathers in verse 10. That comes, I think, from this covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. It's, it's there that God became really for Israel their father and creator. In verse 10, where we have, have we not all one father has not one God created us. That's not a reference, that creation reference, simply to creation in Genesis 1. But God literally made Israel his people. He created them to be his people. And at Mount Sinai, created for himself, made for himself this uh, people to be his. For instance, in Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, in verse 6, the middle of verse 6, Moses writes, Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? That's in this sense at Sinai of being made the people of God. And so God makes covenant with his people there. By that he lays out his relationship with them as he defines it. And he gets to define it because he's God. And so he lays out uh, this relationship uh, with them and he makes promises to them. And in return they make promises back. That's what a covenant is. That one party initiates with here God and makes promises and then the others promise back. And so we see that in the context of this covenant at Sinai. God says, I will be uh, your God. You will be my people. 
And in the midst of that, he's saying, now, here's how I can live amongst you, a holy God amongst an unholy people. How can you, how can you live, among, live in my presence? How can I live in your presence? And so he sets up this way of what we call substitutionary, big word, substitutionary atonement. He takes the unblemished for the blemished. He takes the unblemished animal in place of, substitute for, the blemished worshiper. No reason for this animal to die other than God accepts that animal as having had upon it imputed the blemishes, the sins of the worshiper. He says, this is how you can be in my presence. I'm just, I'm holy. And so for you to live in my presence requires justice to be done. And I'll take this substitute. I'll take this unblemished animal. uh, And there'll be no confusion as to why this animal's dying. has no reason to be killed other than I'm taking it uh, for you. And so he does. He says, this is how you're... This is how you are to live and to live then in my presence. And God promises then to love this people. That's his promise, his covenant. We can summarize it by his love really for us. Then you see, we are to love him in return. Uh, The implication of this covenant is that there's a vow made by those in covenant with God. And that can be summarized as well by love. That is that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. At Sinai, it was first laid out by, you'll have no other gods before me. That's the sense of it. God says, here I am. I'm your God. I'm your Father, Creator. I've made you to be mine. And so I'm going to treat you as father. And so uh, you're to look to no one else other than to me because I am God. And so the vow implicit and even explicit as the people take it is yes, we will be faithful to you. We'll trust you. We'll obey you. We'll love you. We'll have no other gods before you. But you see, implied in all of this, because God is Father, is family. And so, in essence, he's saying, listen, if you're going to worship me, if you're going to declare my worth, and you'll have no other gods before me, uh, you will love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a declaration to you of my worth. Uh, and you declare that with your, with your very lives. But also in the midst of that worship, not only praising God for who he is and giving thanks for what he's done, but also there's this sense of submission to his will. That's how we love him. We submit to his will in joyful obedience. But you realize that that joyful obedience to God requires us to love one another. Look at the Ten Commandments. You might be able to delineate them like this. The first four deal with directly the worship of God, having no other gods before him. And not having any graven images of him that is worshiping him as he, as he reveals himself as he truly is. Uh, not taking his name lightly in vain as it's put. And, and setting aside time to do that a day to stop and gaze upon him and all of that. But, but then 5 through 10 we look are very much horizontal, very much relational. About how we relate to our parents, about how we relate to our spouses, about how we relate to one another in terms of not lying or stealing and, and coveting and all of that love that we have. 
uh, for each other. And so when Jesus was asked to summarize the law, this covenant, he said, well, it can be summarized like this, that you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It isn't an either or. It's a both and. When we're in covenant with God, we're in covenant with each other. When we've made vows to God to be faithful to him, that means we've made vows to be faithful to each other. Both are part of this covenant. And that is how we worship God. And so Malachi lays out this sense that they had been faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. He says, you've been faithless to this covenant. That is, you've broken your vows. He doesn't say, you've been faithless to God. He could have. But he has something very specific in mind here. So he says, you've been faithless to one another. You've profaned, you've desecrated, you've maligned the covenant that God made with our fathers. That, that covenant that God made with them, with them and thus you made with him and each other. So you've broken this vow that you have to one another to love as you love yourself. Or as Jesus would put it, to love as I have loved you. And the specific thing that Malachi has in mind, that God has in mind as he comes to the people here, is marriage. And they've violated this covenant with God and with each other concerning marriage on two counts. One is in the ones they married, and two, in divorcing the ones they had married. All right? Broke it in two ways. I take the first one from verse 11. And Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. And that expression, the sanctuary of the Lord, means the very presence of God among you, whether it's a reference to the temple or the people, but it's where the Lord lives. You've, you've um, profaned that. You've desecrated that. You've maligned that. For Judah has profaned the very presence of the Lord, the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves to be among his people, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, that has nothing to do with interracial or interracial marriage or marriage across ethnic lines. It did somewhat in ancient Israel because they were Israel and anytime they married outside of Israel, they were marrying someone of a foreign God. This is really about marrying outside the faith because there were those who came into Israel from other lands, Ruth, by way of example, who adopted, converted, if we could put it that way, sincerely and profoundly converted to the God of Israel. And so if that occurred, that was fine. But here the notion is that they were profaning this covenant that God had made with them. They were breaking their vows, not only to God, but to each other. Keep that in mind. They were breaking their vows, not only to God, but to each other when they took 
these wives of a foreign God who believed in a God, served a God other than Yahweh, other than the God of Israel. So that was the first one. The second is that they were divorcing their wives, these men of Israel. And I take that from verses 14 through 16. Now, if you have a version other than the one I read, I read out of the ESV, you may have been reading the NIV, the RSV, the NASB, the KJV, or some other initials. Uh, And all that's fine. Uh, We don't have an authorized version at our church. All those are fine translations. And you can trust them. But those who know more about these things than I uh, tell me that verses 14 through 16 uh, are three of the most difficult verses in all of the Old Testament to translate from the Hebrew texts. And I'm not going to pretend that I can give you the accurate translation. (laughs) Uh, But your version may have sounded different than what I read. For instance, the most glaring might be in verse 16, that in other versions other than the ESV and the RSV, says begins by saying, God hates divorce. I have a different rendering of that. But whatever way we translate this, the sense of it is clear that um, they had been divorcing their wives. I could put parenthetically that um, they were divorcing their wives for unacceptable reasons. And that was a breaking of the covenant. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has, was witness between you and the wife of your tomb. You've been faithless. You've broken your vows, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 16, as I have it, we could have it in the NIV, for God hates divorce, or we could have it like this. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So, that's the issue. Marriage, whom they were marrying, and divorce. And it seems, now that's too soft. God took all of this very seriously. He uses words of judgment here that cannot be mistaken. They've profaned the covenants. They have been faithless, verse 11. This is an abomination, verse 11. You can see the judgment, verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of a man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Again, there can be some translation problems with this passage. Others' versions may have. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob anyone who does this. It doesn't really matter. It's a judgment of being cut off. It's the curse of the covenant. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of blessing and curse. If you believed, then you were blessed. Sacrifice had been made for you, blood shed for you. If you did not believe, then you would be cut off. And that was the curse of it, you see. And he's saying, by these actions of 
marrying outside the faith. I will not accept your offering. That is, there'll be no atonement for your sin. That's, that, that, was the, that was the judgment. That was the coldness. Now, always, as we read through the scripture, in the judgment of God, if there is repentance, then there's acceptance by him. But he doesn't lay that out here. But he says, listen, I won't accept your offering. You're cut off from the people. And that applies then to what is coming as well. Because verse 13, he says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth. In other words, he's saying, you come even weeping and crying and pretending that I really matter to you, and I won't accept your offering, and you're all upset about that. Well, here's why. Because you've broken covenant with me, with the people, with the wife of your youth. All right. Now, how do we hear this kind of passage in the scripture? It stirs up all kinds of emotions because this is such a tender topic. And the reason it's a tender topic is because we all live real lives. And we all make real choices throughout the course of our lives. Some of them are sinful. Some of them are not. Some of them we regret. Some of them bring great pain. Some of them we're pleased with. Some bring great joy. But we're in the midst of all that. And there isn't, I suspect, a more tender topic than how we express ourselves in relationship, most especially in marriage. For instance, there are those this morning who are single, who are not married. Some who are single are quite contented in their singleness, and they're sitting there thinking, oh no, another sermon on marriage. Now, the good news, this passage doesn't deal with singleness, so I'm not going to talk about singleness. Other than to say, of course, the single life is validated, present seeming discoveries notwithstanding, by Jesus, uh, that he was not married and lived a contented single life, a contented single life that was full, that was deep, that was expressed in deep abiding relationships with people. He gave himself, literally, but he gave himself for people to love them. And it was a satisfying, fulfilled, if you will, life. Uh, validated too uh, by the apostle named Paul, who at least by the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians was unmarried, whether he had been married and widowed or, or whether he was never married is a difficult thing to know really, but it doesn't matter because as he writes to single people, people are unmarried at that point in time. He says, I wish that all of you could be as I am because he was living a satisfied, fulfilled life as a single man because he was able to give himself in deep and abiding relationships to others for, as Jesus would put it, the kingdom of God. The single life has been validated by countless Christians throughout history, even many in our church. So, so it's, 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 it's a life that God can call people to. It's not the usual calling. 
Those called to be married, to fulfill the mandate of Genesis 2, but uh, because of the fall and sin, there, is, there are those who may be called to singleness, as the scripture says, for the, for the, the kingdom of God. There are others who are single, not by choice. Either spouses died, either divorced, or simply unmarried and want to be. And so when we speak of marriage and its design as God would have it, there's pain thinking. Marriage is so great, and if God wants people to be married, then why am I not? There are others. You're in marriages that are very difficult. And you're thinking, well, if marriage is God's design and it's so wonderful, why am I so unhappy? And is this passage telling me I'm stuck? There are those who have no children but would desire children. And you read that at least an objective goal, intent of God for marriage is godly offspring, then what does that mean? And what if I have offspring? And what if they're not godly? What does, what does that mean in my life? It brings, it brings pain when we think of these, think of these things. Um, some are married to unbelievers. Some knew that when you married That is, you knew your spouse to be an unbeliever. And it may be that you were an unbeliever at that point in time too, but now you're a believer and you find yourself married to an unbeliever and you say, what's that mean for me now? Or it could be that you knew your spouse was an unbeliever and you were a believer and you did it anyway. And now you say, well, now now what does that mean for me? Here I am. Uh, Will God accept me? What does that mean in in my own life? You see, the nuances here and the situations are way more than I could ever list or delineate. But please know that as we talk of these things, that there are difficulties and, and I am aware of those. Uh, you may be sitting here thinking, everybody knows my situation. Everybody knows about me. What, 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 what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What are they thinking about me? Well, let me just tell you this very quickly. Number one is, if there's any advantage to fallen sinful human nature, no one's thinking about you right now. Everybody's thinking about themselves. Just like you are. So, A, don't worry about that. And B... Don't worry about it because none of us as Christians can think worse of you than we think of ourselves. Because we all know ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God. So whatever your circumstance and situation, however known it may be, allow the flush to drain from your face. Because if you're blushing, we're all blushing. So, now the question is, how how then, and I may not have covered your pain, so 
I know that. But, 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 but how do we hear difficult, difficult passages? Let me introduce this to Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Verse 16, the apostle writes, All scripture is breathed out by God. So we believe then that which is scripture uh, is not only inspired by him, that's the old language, better I think, expired, breathed out, it comes from him. That's the sense that it comes from God so we can trust it. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That is, that there isn't anything in the scripture that we can read that doesn't help, that isn't, for our, isn't valuable. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So when we come to the scripture, even difficult passages like this one, passages that may cause pain, uh, discomfort, and whatever feelings it brings that it's still profitable for our instruction to train us, to teach us, to, to instruct us as to things that we do not know or to remind us of things that we've been taught, so to teach us. And for reproof, or to be reproved by the Scripture, what that means is that we are to have our sins pointed out by Scripture. Every time we open the Bible... We should expect that our sins would be pointed out to us. Don't be surprised. Don't stop reading the Bible because every time you read it, you feel bad. (laughs) All right? Expect part of it to be surprised by new information, new knowledge. Wow, I didn't know that that was true. Be taught. But also then to go, Ouch, that's, that's true, I've sinned, should expect that. And if I could say to you, you don't want to be in a church that only reads the happy passages, right? You don't want to be in a church that avoids speaking about difficult things, but when we do speak about difficult things, understand they're difficult things, and they bring pain. We know that, but, but we should expect to be reproved. The Christian language of the Christian speak for this is to be convicted of our sin, all right? Reproved. For correction, we should expect to be corrected. That is, that we should expect to see our sin and our waywardness, if you will, and, and see the right way to be corrected, to know the right way to go. For training in righteousness. So this is like being at the gym, and so it's training, and it's training us in, 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 in the sphere of righteousness, that which is right, so that, here's the purpose of that, the man of God, woman of God, person of God, may be complete, equipped for every uh, good work. And so God is saying, I want you to, to, to know what is good and to be able then to, to do it. And so as we come to this passage the mindset is this. God will teach us. We need to learn some things about marriage. Why? Because this is his deal. It's his covenant. It's, it's his way of relating to him. It's his way of our relating to each other. And so we need to learn about this. And we need to be taught. Some have erred in one sense, if you will, even sinned in ignorance that is, didn't know this. And so well, now is the time. 
to know at least some of this. It won't be complete, but some of this. So to be taught, to be reproved, yes, I, you, will be reminded, perhaps, of sin. Even, perhaps, sin about which we've already confessed and repented. Be reminded of it and say, oh yes, yeah, I did that, I, re- I remember that. And it may bring up this reproof even for those who've confessed and repented. Uh, it may bring up feelings and you may say, if I've been forgiven, why am I feeling so guilty? And let me just help you perhaps make a distinction between guilt feelings and feelings of sorrow and or regret. Christians needn't feel guilty. That is to say, once confession is made, repentance, we needn't feel guilty because we're, in one sense, not. We're pardoned from that sin. We need to feel that. But please understand, don't be fooled. Even though we're forgiven and we know that, we'll always feel the sorrow of that sin. That's just true. Now, over time that may fade. Other times you may not feel it as much. There might be certain incidents, certain things that will bring that to mind and you'll feel the sorrow of that. But but don't don't let that trouble you if I could say it like that. In the sense that that just says that yes, you really believed it was a sin and it was wrong and and now you feel the sorrow of that. When Paul spoke of himself of having been a murderer, he never did that flippantly and lightly as if it didn't matter. Get the sense always of this pinch of sorrow. He was forgiven. He knew that. But still he wished he hadn't done that. That's always there with us. So don't be confused even in the moment. If you've confessed whatever sin, then enjoy that forgiveness. But know that... There's still always an all rats about this that's deep within us. So we should expect that in a passage like this. But we should also expect then to see that which is true, to be corrected, and to see the path of righteousness laid out for us, and that we may help others in that as well, so that then in the midst of this marriage thing, we can do that which is right and good. And so, so that's the calling to us. And, and, no, and no matter where you are in your life, whether you're single, whether you're married in a healthy marriage, unhealthy marriage, whether, whether you've sinned in a particular area, divorce, whatever, whatever that is, there's help for us to be corrected. You can all use that and be trained then in righteousness and equipped. So that, I think, is how we hear really all of the scripture. There's nothing new here. It's how we hear all of the scripture, but but this. So let me just very quickly then uh, speak of this main theme that maybe all I get to today. Speak of this main theme, which is, which is marriage. And why it is that God's so upset with this and, and how this marriage uh, reflects uh, this covenant with God and this covenant, if you will, with each other. The word covenant comes up all the time, doesn't it? Uh, in the scripture. That's why we talk about ourselves and our tradition as being covenantal. We understand the Bible by way of, of covenant. And so what we have here is, is that God's saying, 
that marriage is a covenant. Notice as he, as he puts it in verse 14. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What does that, that mean? Well, it means that a marriage is a covenant. It's, 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 it's an agreement, yes, between two people who make vows to each other and they're going to live according to those vows, not according necessarily to feelings, but according to those vows. They've made promises. To be faithless to that covenant is to break those vows to one another. I did a wedding yesterday and I'm very aware that the I do said by each, the groom and the bride, resounded not only in earth, on earth, but in heaven. A covenant was made. In fact, in the vows, I take you to be my wife or husband. And I do promise and covenant, a bit redundant, but just to show the significance of it. I do promise and covenant. I'm I'm, I'm making a vow here, a vow of covenant that is to be unbreakable. Promise and covenant before God and these witnesses. You already see how this covenant is part of God and others as well as ourselves. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband wife in plenty and in want. By the way, most couples are thinking plenty at that point. In plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, thinking joy, in sickness and in health, thinking health, but vowing to be faithful in want, to be faithful in sickness, to be faithful in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. Now, to be faithless to that covenant means that we break that vow. But you can see in the midst of this that God is witness, it says right here, God says, I, wit- I was witness between you and the wife of your youth. And since this is a covenant with one another as well, that we can be faithless to one another, that's the theme here, that it must be in some sense a covenant with each other. So that when someone gets married, what they're doing is covenanting to each other. But in the midst of that covenant is God witnessing and the church So we're all involved in this. So when that is broken, it isn't just broken with the couple, husband and wife. It's also broken with God. And it's also broken with the church, with the people of God. Now that's a hard concept with us because we don't understand very well as independent Americans how united we are to each other in God. But when Malachi is saying, you've been faithless to this covenant, he means not only to God, but also to each other. And that includes marrying outside the faith. Now, he says this marriage is a covenant. And it goes all the way back, of course, to Genesis chapter 2, where God lays out this relationship between men and women. He said, a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, 
and the two should become one flesh. He's saying, here's the deal. When marriage happens, what happens is that there's a oneness that takes place. He uses the word here, companion, rich word. He said that husbands and wives are to be companions. They're to share life together. They're to be one. Now, we know that in being one, that's where all the problems start, right? I mean, that, that's the trouble. That's the growing up. That's the maturing. That's, it takes a while uh, to get there. Uh, Karen and I have been married 39 years, and we're becoming one. Just the other day, we weren't so one, as I recall. Right? Still. But we're becoming one, you see. It's that oneness. It's that being companions. You're to share life together. That's the covenant. And when we don't, we break that. Now, why? Why, then, is God so upset when they're marrying outside the faith? Why does that break the covenant of marriage? Why does that break, if you will, the covenant with God, the covenant with each other? And it's because, he's saying to them, that there can't be real companionship. If your heart has been reborn, your life, if your deepest desire is to know God and to follow Him, then in this most intimate of relationships, You can't be companion. You can't be one. If God is the one who defines your life through faith in Jesus, how can you be one with one whose life isn't thusly defined? If your life is directed by God through faith in Jesus, How can you be one with someone whose life is not directed in the same way? If your delight is in pleasing God by way of faith through Jesus, faith in Jesus, how can your life be one with someone for whom that is not their delight? It just we could say it simply makes no sense that there could be that union, that oneness. Not only that, the great warning in Scripture is if you do this, Israel, if you marry outside the faith, if you bring foreign wives into your lives, then, then, then you are the one who will be deluded. Your faith, that's the danger. We see that throughout all of the old covenant. In a sense, God is saying, how can... You worship me and worship me alone. In fact, this passage we often use in the context of marriage, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawless, what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan, the demons, or what portion does a believer share 
with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them. I'll walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people, and so forth. You know, that passage in 2 Corinthians isn't about marriage. We apply it to marriage, and we should. It's really about worship. If we're to worship God, if that's the essence of our lives, how can we worship when we're only part worshiper, when we're united to one who isn't? All right, now what's this mean? I have three minutes. That's a lie. (laughs) Well, yeah. What's it mean, really? Does this mean that if I'm married to an unbeliever, then I should divorce that unbeliever? Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says no. To stay, to love that unbeliever. In fact, to pray for that unbeliever, 1 Peter chapter 3, directed at wives, to pray for unbelieving spouses. Because, you see, God can... Bring them to faith, and that's the heart's desire. Does it mean that I can't live a satisfied life? And the answer is yes and no. The answer is there can be some satisfaction, yes, of course. But honestly, the answer is that it can't be as fulfilling as if you were married to a believer. That's the wisdom of God, to be married to a believer. So it's simply... We can't be. There'll be pain to experience married to an unbelieving spouse that a person married to a believing spouse won't experience. Most especially when you lay your unbelieving spouse to the grave. The pain could be enormous. So, that's simply the truth of it. And does that mean, of course, as I mentioned a minute ago, that, that, that this spouse can't come to faith? No. Does that mean you can't invite the spouse to church? No, you should invite the spouse to church and include in the fellowship and all of that as much as possible so that others can pray as well. God, at times, is gracious to redeem these situations. We have many in our church who have come to faith by way of their spouse and that's a good thing however I once heard uh, coach self after a basketball game say this that a bad shot's a bad shot even if it goes in and so we mustn't think that just because some of our sins work out all right (laughs) that that is the way of righteousness Uh, it isn't we can't order our lives by bad shots that go in Uh, We have to still shoot good shots. I've shot many a bad shot in my life that God has redeemed. And he said, don't do that again. So we govern our lives by bad shots. What does it mean, though, if you're single? What it means this, don't marry an unbeliever. It just simply means that. It means for parents, teach your children, that you have to marry and the faith used to whisper in my children's ears as they were going to sleep. 
when you marry, the person you marry must love Jesus, must love your dad, and must love you. Pretty much in that order. I often debated about two and three. But it was, had to become an expectation for us. We had to tell them, sometimes with tears. They married an unbeliever, and they were believers, that we could not give our blessing. We had to know that. Because you see, it isn't just about their marriage. It isn't just about our marriages. It's about our worship of God. And it's about our relationship with each other. Please hear this. In the way it's intended. When a believer marries an unbeliever, it is a sin against the unbeliever. Because it confuses them about what it really means to follow Christ. When a believer marries an unbeliever, it's a sin against God because it's saying that I am willing to divide my life. I'm I'm willing to become one in the most intimate of relationships with one who does not honor you. And it's also a sin against fellow believers. It's also being faithless to one another because it's saying that I'm going to divide my loyalties. I'm going to divide my loyalties from my family, the body of Christ, and the world. And I'm going to in part forsake you for another Because I'm in covenant with you and I can't bring the one with whom I'm one in covenant with us. So I'm willing to sin against you. Hear this. To sin against you. This isn't taught very often. To sin against you for the sake of this other. That is breaking faith with God. That is breaking faith with the church. That's the seriousness of it. Can God redeem? Yes. Can God forgive? Yes. But don't take a bad shot and hope it goes in. So if you're dating an unbeliever, stop. You can fall in love with that unbelieving person. And get your mind all confused. In fact, if you're dating an unbeliever and the unbeliever gives some impression of wanting to be a Christian or even confesses to be a Christian and starts coming to church and being involved in that, I would encourage you to break up with that person. Because, you see, if you don't, that person's faith in Christ will always be confused at least for a long period of time. It's got to be proven. That person has got to, got, to, got to stand up on his or her own and be a follower of Christ and not a follower of you. Lots of guys have come to church, trust me. 
because of that girl who's coming to church. And he knows that her dad won't let him go out with her unless he comes to church. And so he shows up. And then often in year three of marriage or year four of marriage or year five of marriage, he's distraught and says, he won't come to church with me. He won't because he really isn't. And then he doesn't know, did I, did I really follow Christ because of her? Or am I really following Christ? That may take 20 years to work out in some people's lives. So, so break up, allow that man or woman to, 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 to flourish in their relationship with Christ. And if it's meant to be, it'll be me. It'll be. It's that important for us. That important for us. Let's pray. Father, um, teach us. Reprove us. Correct us. Train us in righteousness that we may be equipped to do that which is good. Father, with the pain that we feel because of life that we've lived, forgive us our sins. Enable us to know that forgiveness. Enable us to walk in it. And Father, we do thank you for the multitude of times you've redeemed our sinful unwise decisions so we cast ourselves upon you even now no standing in which to do that other than we know that you're gracious and compassionate so father we do pray for all of the situations in which we find ourselves be it in marriage or in dating or 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 in other aspects of life we pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would be compassionate to us, that you would redeem even these sinful, unwise choices that we've made. And to the ones that you leave with us that we must bear, I pray that we bear the burdens of a sense of your presence, a sense of your acceptance, a sense of your strength, but still your face would be upon us, that your grace would be to us, that your blessing would be ours. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.